Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. For the past two Sundays, we've considered these verses, one and two, from Ephesians chapter five. If you want and you're not there, you can go ahead and turn to chapter five this morning. But these remarkable verses reveal the very heart of the Christian faith and the premier example of the Christian faith. The heart of the Christian faith is love, and Christ is the premier example of that love. Everything about the Christian faith has to do with love because it began from love. It was the love of God who sent Christ. It was Christ's love who gave his own life for us. And the result is that the love of the Christian given because of the grace of Christ causes him to worship God and to proclaim the gospel to the lost. We find the love of God in passages such as John 3.16. We know this passage, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become righteousness of God in Him. So we see the love of God. We See the love of Christ who gave his own life in the verses we read earlier in Scripture, such as John 10, 14 through 17. Jesus speaking, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep, he's speaking of the Gentiles, which are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will come, become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. You see the love of Christ in John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 says, Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, speaking of Christ, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness by his wounds. You were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so we see the love of Christ demonstrated there the love of God, the love of Christ, and because of the love of Christ, the love that Christians have. We see this in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. It says this, John speaking to believers, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves 
has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us also, we ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfect. Sorry, perfected in us. We see the love of the Christian in 1 John 4, 19 through 21. It says, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It's the love of Christians that lead them to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the world. It's the love of Christians granted because of the saving nature of Christ that allows us to love one another. But the challenge today isn't so much being able to agree with the statement, God is love. Everyone agrees with that statement. The challenge isn't to convince people that Christ is love, or even necessarily that Christianity is a religion of love. None of that is difficult. Our culture loves to talk about love. The challenge becomes defining the term love. Last week we spoke of the fact and the week before that love as defined biblically is a sacrificial selfless love that doesn't seek its own. It isn't looking to get something from someone. Instead, biblical love is looking out for others with their best interest in mind. Regrettably, the world defines love in terms of emotions and how something makes them feel. It's always self-centered, and that's where the conflict happens because biblical love is selfless. The world's love is selfish. So the apostle begins chapter 5 by teaching us how the Christian's life is meant to look. And then he follows that up with the prime example. Right? He says, walk in love. That's the command. This is what the Christian life is meant to look like. And then he defines that love by saying, just as Christ also has loved you and gave himself up for us. So the prescription is to walk in love and the pattern is Christ. Now, Paul's continuing in his usual way of communicating, and we, we've noticed this throughout the epistle to the Ephesians. First, often the apostle gives doctrine, he gives teaching, right? And then he gives application. And often, as we've seen, as we've seen, he gives both the positive and the negative side of the application. Right? Therefore, be imitators of God. Verse 1, that's positive. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. That's positive, right? And there's really and truly, I think, nothing better than considering 
the life and the actions of Christ so that we might imitate him. I mean, there's nothing more comforting to the human soul than to dwell on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could, it would be nice to just always talk about that. I mean, the loveliest place on earth for a human, I think, is the place of quiet contemplation, considering the great love of our Savior and all that He's done for us. It fills us with joy and it leads us to contentment. And if many had their way, this would be all that we ever consider these positive aspects because people don't like the negative. I was reminded of this recently when someone I met told me that he wished people were known only for what they were for and never for what they were against. It's a common sentiment. Effectively, it communicated this. Let's just all be positive all the time and never speak about anything that seems negative. We don't need the negative aspect of things. Well, you know by now that the Apostle Paul disagrees with that. He's careful to give us the whole picture from both sides. Not only does he say we should be this way, but then the Apostle turns around and he leaves nothing to question, and he says also you must not be that way. So he gives us the positive and the negative. He's been going back and forth like this for some time now in Ephesians, and he continues the pattern here in chapter 5. And he does so because in reality we need the negative examples as much as we need the positive examples. Ultimately, they're meant to produce a positive result. I think the people who always want to hear the positive are a bit like ostriches with their head in the sand, leaving their backside exposed. At least that's how I see it. Of course, ostriches don't really do that, but you get the picture. God never desires for His people to be unprepared, to be caught off guard, or to be ignorant concerning things of the faith. So we are told of the grand things of salvation and of holiness, and then we're equally, equally warned of the attacks of the enemy because they're real. We're equally warned of the temptation to sin because it's real. And then mature man is made wiser and more godly when considering the negative along with the positive, while the immature really just cries, we only want the positive stuff. Well, this brings us to our passage this morning. First, Paul began with the positive. We read that, we talked about that, and now he's going to reveal the negative aspect. He's told us to walk in love. He's given Christ as the example of that love. And now he's going to tell us what we need to avoid. If you want to put your eyes down on verses 3 through 5, I want to read them for us this morning. My original intention was to get through verses 3 through 5, but you're going to get verse 3 this morning. But I want to read this for context. It says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There are two aspects of life addressed here in the passage I just read you. I want you to take note of them. We're going to cover one today and then we'll get to the other next week, Lord willing. And those two aspects are conduct and speech. You see, he deals with conduct in verse 3, and in verse 4, he's dealing with Christian speech. In chapter 4, we saw something very similar, the same kind of pattern. He told us to be angry, but not to sin. We're advised not to steal, but to work so that we might have something to share with others. All of these things were concerned with conduct. And then he also tells us in chapter 4 that we are to refrain from telling lies that we're to speak the truth to one another. And then in verse 29 of chapter 4, we read, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Paul's dealing with both the conduct of the believer as well as the speech of the believer. So here, in verse 3, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So Paul's concerned deeply with our conduct as believers. We're to walk in love and these things hinder that walk because they're contrary to biblical love. In other words, there's no place in the life of one who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ for these things. In the example of Christ that Paul starts with, Paul gives us some specifics of love because we see that in the life of Christ, love is sacrificial. And now he's pointing to things precisely contrary to sacrificial love. Here in our passage this morning, what we see is a perverted love That's self-gratifying. The love of Christ is holy. Perverted love is sinful. The love of Christ is selfless. Perverted love is selfish. The love of Christ is what is to be imitated by the Christian. Perverted love is to not even be named among us. Immorality, impurity, and greed. We realize that our Our culture is saturated with these things. And to be fair, this isn't unique to human history, right? We look at our country and sometimes we tend to think that it's totally different than it's ever been. And while part of that is true for the history of our country, it's not at all true for the history of mankind. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? So perverted, God destroyed them. Rome was filled with immorality. And the saints had to be on guard against these things all throughout history. It's historically accounted that Timothy, who was said as the elder, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, later on was actually martyred by preaching the gospel at a parade that was celebrating all types of sexual immorality and other things. So this is nothing new to humanity. You know, it's interesting, Charles Spurgeon, who's often referred to as the prince of preachers, said in his day, and I quote, all sorts of hearers come to this place and 
they will be the first to say, the preacher should not mention such a subject as fornication. Well, my answer to that remark is, then you should not commit such an iniquity and give me a reason to speak of it. That's not so long ago. Now, I do believe we're seeing in a unique these things in a unique way in our own country. These things have always existed, and we shouldn't pretend that they haven't. Remember the Apostle Paul describes the lost state of man in Ephesians chapter 2, and what does he say about the unbeliever, right? If you'll recall, he talks about how the unbeliever lives in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So we shouldn't be surprised, but where it was once probably in our country, primarily hidden in the shadows, now it's paraded, literally, in our streets. It's celebrated by our leaders. It's sadly adopted even by many professing Christians. You talk about immorality and impurity and greed, and it's become so inundated in our culture now that even professing Christians have decided these are acceptable, contrarily to God's word. The Apostle Paul says it should not even be named among those who profess Christ. You see, Paul isn't concerned with what the world is doing. He's not addressing the world, he's addressing the church at Ephesus and to us. He's not addressing the world because he understands that they can do no differently before they come to Christ. But the one who has been taught Christ is to know better. The expectation isn't that these things are only sometimes found in Christianity. The expectation is that these things are never even to be named among you, among Christians. I was reading a survey this week done by Pew Research in 2020. And it was discovered that 67% of those who profess to be Christians believe that intercourse between unmarried adults was acceptable before God as long as they were quote-unquote committed to one another. 67% of professing Christians. It went on to say that 36% of professing evangelical, so this is a more narrowed, narrowly defined group of people, 36% of professing evangelical said that casual intercourse with anyone you weren't committed to in any way was acceptable. And then another 17% said that it's rarely acceptable. And when you put those numbers together, what you've really got, according to this survey, is 53% of professing evangelicals who essentially believe hookup culture is perfectly fine before God. And yet, the Apostle Paul says these things should not even be named among you. This is really to say nothing of the most recent movements of so-called Christians who define themselves by their perverse practices. But these are the times we live in. 
And even as I'm giving you these statistics, I, we don't need to bemoan these things. Because remember, the church in Ephesus lived in similar times, if not truly worse. Where these things were all around them. And Paul's aiming to remind the Christians in Ephesus and us today what we're to avoid. And that we can avoid and that we should avoid these things. Now, we've kind of spoken in generalities. I want to take a closer look with the time we have this morning at each of these vices listed in the scripture. The first thing Paul mentions is immorality. If you profess Christ, immorality shouldn't even be named among you. Well, this is an interesting word. The Greek word here is pornea. It's the word that we get pornography from. And it's used for every type of sexual sin. It's a broad and far-reaching word that includes both physical acts as well as spiritual harlotry. Hosea 5.4 uses a word here. It says, Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Same Hebrew equivalent there. So we see it used in the Old Testament to refer to a spiritual act rather than a physical one. Now, it's interesting if we turn to the book of Acts, and you can go ahead and do that quickly. Acts 24, 24. I want to read this to you. Because here in this passage, we see actually the antonym, the opposite of this immorality here. Now listen, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to Felix. It says, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, let me just say as an aside, here's a great lesson for believers. Paul gets an opportunity to sit with a governor even, who's an unbeliever, and listen to what he's speaking about. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. Well, the word here, self-control, is the word I want to look at just quickly, okay? The word self-control. Ingratia. It's the antonym or the opposite of porneia, which is immorality in our text this morning. So this self-control here is used, by the way, specifically when speaking of sexuality, which is vital in the passage to understand this passage in Acts because it says that Felix became frightened. Well, why did he become frightened when the Apostle Paul was talking about sexual immorality? Well, you see, Felix's marriage to Drusilla was actually an adulterous marriage. He took her as a wife when she was married with another man to another man. We we know this historically. So Paul was discussing the issue of immorality and the judgment to come, and Felix became frightened because he knew exactly what was being said. So the expectation is that the Christian stays far away from any and every form of sexual immorality, both physically and spiritually, and is instead self-controlled. 
The next thing Paul mentions here is impurity. We have immorality and then impurity. The word here, impurity, is really even more of a general term than the word immorality. What does it mean? Well, the word here, impurity, refers to anything at all that God considers to be unclean or filthy. It's used ten times in the New Testament. In Matthew 23, 27, it's used to refer to rotten bones. Jesus himself uses it in this way. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are filled with dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. There's your word. The other nine times this word, impurity, is used in the New Testament, it's always connected with sexual sin. So the Apostle Paul is really hammering the importance here of avoiding sexual sin. Immorality, impurity, it would include everything, the word impurity, from impure thoughts to lustful passions to ideas or any other type of sexual perversion. Between these two words, immorality and purity, every type of unclean, perverse act, thought, idea, or corruption, Paul is saying, must not even be named among you. It's never okay. It's never acceptable. Everything from your thought life to your marriage commitment to your commitment to worshiping God alone is included. It's amazing, I think, how thorough and really explicit Scripture is on the sinfulness of perverted sexuality, and yet there are so many Christians who seem to want to deny the Bible's clear teaching when it comes to immorality. Maybe even worse in our day is the fear of not being liked, and so we just don't say anything. I'm glad the Apostle Paul had a spine. He loved the truth. And he loved Felix and Drusilla, and he loved them enough to warn them about righteousness and the judgment to come. Talking about how many Christians have adopted a position counter to Scripture, a case in point is a comment made by the 2019 Southern Baptist Convention president when he said this, and I quote, the Bible appears more to whisper on sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Did you get that? The Bible appears more to whisper on sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Well, beyond the staggering ignorance of that statement, one for a pastor and two for a Southern Baptist Convention president. It demonstrates that Paul's message is desperately needed today. Desperately needed in the church today. He says God whispers about sexual immorality, but Paul says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Dear friends, let me just tell you this. The Bible never whispers about anything. 
anything. God has spoken, and He's spoken with just as much authority in the beginning of the book, Genesis 1.1, as He has to the very end of the book, Revelation. God doesn't whisper about anything. And in fact, if all we had in Scripture were just this one passage we have this morning, it would be enough to dispute the quote from that former SBC president. It would be enough. But this isn't the only passage. I want to remind us again this morning that God destroyed entire cities and every single resident in them because of sexual immorality. Tell Sodom and Gomorrah that God only whispers about sexual sin. I'm not going to go through all of the verses that mention immorality this morning, but I do want to demonstrate from God's word so that you yourself can see that God doesn't whisper about anything, and least of all, not immorality. Let me just read a few to you. To the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 20, listen, it says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body. But sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Sometimes you hear this ridiculous and preposterous statement that, well, all sins are exactly the same and equal. No, they're not. They're not. And we have it right here. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But see, there's a distinction with sexual sin. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But I think this is important that we really grasp and understand because the world around us believes and teaches and presses upon the church to believe exactly the opposite. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Immorality is such an issue. The apostle says, rather than fall into immorality, 
get married. It's such an issue that he says, rather than fall into that sin, get married. And then, after you're married, ensure that you safeguard yourself against temptation. In other words, it's foolish to think once you're married, there'll never be any temptation. And the way you safeguard that is by fulfilling your marital duties to one another. It's a protection against immorality even in that. Mark 7, 20-23, it says, And he was saying, this is Christ speaking, that which proceeds out of the man, that which, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thieves, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. So we have the warning there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. through For this is the will of God. Let me just stop right there. If you've ever wondered what the will of God for your life is, we've got a whole bunch of Christians running around today like a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off, stressed about finding out what God's specific, particular will for their life is, and it's right here in the text. So if you ever forget... Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, write it down, chapter 4, 3 through 5, and believe God. This is what he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you become holy. That is the will of God for our life. God doesn't care what job you have. If your job doesn't hinder your walk in sanctification, then praise God. If your job makes your sanctification challenging, difficult, if it takes it away from you, if it keeps you from worship, if it keeps you from growing in the Lord, then that job isn't the will of God for you. Your sanctification, my sanctification, that's the will of God. He's made it really easy for us. He goes on to say, He defines that sanctification. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Gentiles there is referencing unbelievers. Okay, I mean, these are just a few verses. So if anyone says to you, well, the Bible just whispers about Sexuality, here you go. Just a few. The man who says God whispers about any sin, especially sexual immorality, has left the word of God and joined hands with the world. Period. Now, I've said that what we're seeing in our culture is not new to human history, but I do want to answer the question, why are we seeing this sexual revolution that we have It needs to be answered. I think it can be answered. It is new to our country, to our culture, to see what we see these days. There were no pride parades 50 years ago. No one even thought of that, heard of that. So what's happening? Why is there an increase in perversity? Well, the Bible tells us exactly why. We don't have to guess. We don't have to pray about it. 
God tells us exactly why. We're seeing it because it's the judgment of God. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to get there. Romans chapter 1. We'll look down at verse 18. It's a little section, but I want to read this to you because I want you to understand from God why we see what we see. So you understand that we're to avoid it, that we're to walk in love. You understand what love means as defined by the Bible. Now the apostle is saying, here's the negative side, walk in love, and therefore don't do these things. Don't be immoral, don't be impure. But just to kind of help us understand why we're even having to deal with this issue, Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I mean, we've, we've taught this to you guys, you understand this. There's no such thing as someone who doesn't know God. According to God, He's made it evident clearly so that they're without excuse. And then it goes on to say, 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Listen, here's the answer. Therefore, so because of all of this, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents and without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. What we're seeing in society today is a clear evidence of God's judgment on this nation. This is the answer to the question half the country seems to be baffled over. How 
Does such a small percentage of the population run everything, dictate everything? Why do we see this filth everywhere we turn? Well, the answer is as clear as daylight for those who read the Bible. When people refuse to worship God, exchanging the glory of God to worship other things, whatever they may be, God gives them over to their lusts and degraded passions as a form of judgment. Sexual sin is indeed not just like every other sin. Not only does God not whisper about sexual sin, but an increase in sexual sin in a nation is a sign that God's wrath is on that nation. Folks, sexual sin is nothing to play with. It's evil, and it's antithetical to the character and the loving nature of Christ. And Paul's warning comes because these things are the counterfeit of true, considerate, caring, selfless, serving love. So Paul starts with the positive. Walk in love. He says this is what love looks like. It's, it's the love of Christ. It's totally unconditional, totally sacrificial. And then he gives us the contrary. But be warned This is what's opposite. Stay away from these. These things shouldn't even be named among you. The last thing we're going to see this morning concerning our conduct is that we must abstain from all greed. Abstain from morality, abstain from impurity, and abstain from all greed. Must not even be named among you. So, the commentators believe that this could be a form of covetousness that pertains to sexuality, some commentators. In other words, it takes advantage of others for self-gratification. Other commentators believe that Paul had the 10th commandment in mind here when he's talking about greed, where it says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The text really doesn't give us enough connections to make any of those, so I'm uncomfortable assuming that. But what we do know from the text for sure is that here greed refers to an extreme form of selfishness. That's what we're talking about. Which is the very opposite of the love of Christ that we saw in verse 2. Right? In verse 2 it says, Just as Christ also loved you, and how did He love you? He gave Himself up for you. Greed does exactly the opposite, right? Greed seeks to get whatever it can from you. And so the admonition is to walk in love. The example was Christ's sacrifice. Christ's love is giving. It's a sacrificial love. And greed is selfishness, bent on taking regardless of the cost or harm to others. It makes perfect sense in our passage that the apostle would add greed because it's impossible to have immorality and impurity and not greed. Wherever you find immorality and impurity, you're going to find greed. Remember, Paul connected greed with impurity already in the book of Ephesians. If you recall way back to verse 19 of chapter 4, when we preached through that, speaking of the unbeliever, Paul said this, he said, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So he's already made that connection to us, for us. 
So we've got to take the warning against sexual sin very seriously. It's all around us. I mean, you can't open Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or watch a movie. I mean, you, you almost can't even find a billboard in places that have billboards these days without feeling dirty just because you saw something driving down the highway that you never should have seen. Right now, we've got a battle going on in our own city because there are a bunch of perverse books in the children's section of the library that we're trying to get moved to a different place. It's all over, and so we've got to be on guard. To quote Spurgeon one more time, he said, Sin is a thief. It will rob your soul of its life. It will rob God of his glory. Sin is a murderer. It stabbed our father Adam. It slew our purity. Sin is a traitor. It rebels against the king of heaven and earth. That's true. Sin always brings death where Christ came to bring life. If only the Christian church would get back to understanding how evil sin is. Sin aims to rob you of the life Christ is giving you. It's not just a list of do's or don'ts. Paul's warning us so that we don't fall into something that's aiming to kill us. Right? Satan comes to do what? Steal kill, and destroy. That's exactly what sin aims to do. Well, there's another reality here in the text that's equally important as the weightiness of the warning, and I want to sort of end on that this morning. At the end of our text in verse 3, it says, as is proper among saints. Well, what's, what's so incredible about that? Well, This is where your hope lies, right here. If you're you're depressed and afraid this morning, maybe that's a little bit good. But here's your hope. What do I mean? Well, Paul calls you saints. If you belong to Christ, you are in fact a saint. If you have profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you repented of your sin, you're trusting Christ and Christ alone, not your good works, not anything else for your salvation, then you are by definition a saint. Well, what does saint mean? Saint means holy one. That's your hope. If you're a Christian, your hope is in the fact and your strength is in the fact that you have learned Christ. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. And that means you've been empowered by the Spirit of God so that you can flee temptation. You don't have to hide under a rock. Christ has given us everything we need to be able to guard ourselves against immorality and impurity and greed so that they're not named among us. Your hope for the future is that you have been given all the means necessary 
to resist when you are tempted. The question is not, do you have what you need? It's, are you using what God's given you? That's the question. That's the question. Before you came to Christ, we learned what? You were slaves to the lust of the flesh. But now you're set free as a believer, if you're a Christian here today, a slave to righteousness as you will. Yes, the battle is difficult. It's all around us. Clearly, God's judgment is on our nation, which means we're going to continue to see a rise in perversity. But if you're saved, you've been given everything you need to do precisely what the apostle here is telling you to do. Avoid these things. You've been given everything you need through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit, right? We learned that in chapter 2, I think, of Ephesians. The Holy Spirit is given to every single believer as a seal of your salvation. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not Christian, period. And it's the Holy Spirit that's given you, empowered you to be able to flee these things. You have everything you need to walk in love. You have the perfect example in Christ. When these things become hard, when they become challenged, when we look around us and we feel like it's just everywhere, consider Christ. You're meant to walk in love and ask yourself, what does the love of Christ look like? Selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, impurity, immorality, those things always seek to self-gratify. To take something from someone else for self-pleasure. It's exactly the opposite of Christ. And so Paul says, let not morality, impurity, or greed even be named among you. Rather, we should live sacrificially, unselfishly, and unconditionally loving. Let's pray.